Good morning. Good morning. Grab your Bible and flip to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 5 to be exact. That's where we're going to be camping out. And I'll encourage you to actually grab your Bible. Like, don't just think that, uh, you know what, I'm watching the sermon on, on the computer that I don't need to grab your Bible. Like, grab it. I want you to follow through. It's a lengthy passage today, so it'd be good for you to follow along. Uh, so if you need to pause, just pause, grab your Bible, and then come back to chapter 5. So before the stay-at-home order went out, uh, so this is about a month and a half ago, I went to the crest and I watched a movie called 1917. Uh, it's a story from World War One about a British soldier trying to carry a message that will save the entire regiment. But he has to carry it across a Germ German territory. And there's this particular scene when he's in this German town in the middle of the night. He, he makes his way through this shattered urban wasteland where he knows German soldiers are still hiding. Uh, remember, this is in the middle of the night and no one can see anything. But from time to time, a flare will go up and light up everything. And you can see exactly what's going on. There's no hiding in that moment when the flare goes up. Everything is clear for a moment, more clear almost than it was in the daylight. And those moments when the flare lights up the sky, you see rats quivering and as they appear and disappear. You see the city, you see the buildings, you see soldiers crouching and hiding. You see everything so in our passage today, Jesus is lighting up a flare. He's giving us a su sudden, clear glimpse. And when the flare goes up, things that before we had a shadow of understanding about, now, now we'll see as clear as daylight. He's making himself plain for us. Jesus is diving into one of the most important doctrines that he is God. He is lighting up a flare so that we can see details that we usually don't pay attention to. And as Jesus is lighting up the sky, he's not just doing this so that we have some new information about him. He's doing it so that we can see our way forward. So as we dive into this text, there's one question I want you to think about. This is the question that I'll come back at the end. But when you hear this truth, this, this doctrine about Jesus, how does it affect you? How does it change your life from here on out? So let's jump in. Chapter 5, Gospel of John, verse 19. We read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus, Jesus is starting to reveal to the Jewish leaders that he is God. To us, as we have been walking through the book, this is not surprising, right? Like John, the writer of the gospel, started his book with this. He started with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like in, the very, in a few verses later, we find out that the Word in the verse 1 is Jesus. So Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God. God and Jesus, in fact, is God. So by the time we get to chapter 5 for us, it's not a surprise at all, 
right? Like it's not a surprise at all that Jesus is God. But if you remember the passage right before this, the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus had just proclaimed himself as one with the Father, essentially saying he is God. Jesus has healed a lame man on the Sabbath, and when the religious leaders confronted him uh, because it was against the law to work on the Sabbath, Jesus said, God has been working on the Sabbath, and I am now working on the Sabbath because we are one and the same. And they freaked out, and they wanted to kill him. And Jesus, utterly unfazed by their murderous intent, starts a monologue about himself. Here he begins to unpack for us how he and the Father are one. In a way, Jesus is lighting a flare for anyone who is looking. And this is mind-blowing stuff because he's giving us a glimpse of how the Trinity works. This is a glimpse into something pretty complicated for our finite minds to understand. But but here we go. Jesus throws this throws the first flare up. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus starts off this conversation of his deity by showing his relationship to his father. Jesus is saying that he does only what his father is doing. He doesn't do anything by himself. They are connected. In fact, for whatever the father does, uh, that the son does likewise. And in verse 20, Jesus begins to walk us a little farther into the reality of this oneness with God by giving us three for or three because statements. I think of each statement as another flare leading us a little farther along the path of this reality. So verse 24, or because the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So for, for is a word in Greek that can be translated as for or because. So Jesus said, the Father and I are one. We are doing the same work because the Father loves the Son. And because he loves him, he shows him all that he himself is doing. So have you considered that the Father loves his Son? Have you considered that? Uh, The Father rejoices and delights in his Son. In the Greek language, there's a few words for our one word, love. Usually when the Trinity is talked about in the Bible, uh, their love is described as this unconditional love. The word agape is often used. But here Jesus uses the word uh, the word for love as love of friendship in Greek, phileo. Uh, is from our human standpoint, this word would be used to describe a personal love between friends who delight in sharing everything. And now let's apply this love to the Father and Son. The Father and Son are separate persons, right? This simply means that they're able to act according to their own power, but because of the bond between the Father and the Son, because of the nature of the love and identity within the Godhead, Jesus does no action that the Father does not also do. I told you this is mind-blowing, and Jesus himself says at the end of that verse, it is this way so that you may marvel. The Father is at work in this world. And sure, in the season like we are in today, it feels like God is not at work. But I can assure you that he is at work. The scriptures can assure you that he is at work. He is in control. He is in charge. And the stuff that he is doing in the world, he reveals it to the Son. And the Son goes and does it. 
The father loves his son and what he is doing. Listen, this love is why the cross is so powerful. The cross is this love allowing itself to be wounded. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we have a prayer between Jesus and his father. Uh, Jesus is in the garden, and he's and so in verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, the cup that he is talking about, the cup that Jesus is talking about, is this is the sin of humanity falling on him in the cup in the, in the form of wrath of God. And a chapter later, Matthew twenty-seven, verse forty-six, Jesus is on the cross, and, and in verse forty-six, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" On the cross. This love is undoing something that has never been through. The depth of Jesus' agony showing us just how deep this love is. But for Jesus, his first flare or evidence for his oneness with God is that he, that he lights up in front of the religious leaders is the fact that his father loves him. Now, the second flare that Jesus puts up in the air is in verse, 40, is in verse 21. Verse 21 says, For as the Father rises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now hear when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So this is the beauty of salvation, right? Like hearing the voice of our shepherd and truly believing who Jesus is. So Jesus is saying, I am God because like God, I have the authority and power to give life. I talked about this last week on Easter, that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning that he conquered death and made resurrection a possibility for all of us. Death didn't hold him in the tomb. Yes, he took the sins of the world upon himself and died for you and me, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered death. This gave Jesus the power and authority to give life and salvation. The Father gave Jesus the authority and power to speak salvation into your heart. Salvation is hearing the voice of the shepherd. It's being brought into the, from spiritual death to spiritual life at the sound of his voice. So have you heard his voice? If you have, Jesus is moving in your heart. He's moving your heart towards himself. In other words, Jesus is saving you. Sometimes recognizing his voice isn't immediate. For me, the way Jesus spoke into my heart was over time. So you can take time to figure out what you are hearing. It can take time to realize that you are a sinner. It, it, can take, and it takes time and also humility to surrender to Jesus. And there's so many ways God pulls our hearts to himself. If you, if you are a believer, your story is probably very different from mine, but you too can no doubt point to the way you heard Jesus speak into your heart slowly or all at once calling you from death to life. And our passage today shows that Jesus gives life to whom he wills. 
He has authority to save. He has the power to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He is God. So Jesus is God because the Father loves his Son and shows him his will and he does it. Second, Jesus is God because he has power and authority to save and resurrect. Now the third flare that goes up, uh, the third flare Jesus puts in the sky is verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, for all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, who does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the third flare is is the fact that Jesus sits as the ultimate judge. He is loved by the Father. He is the one who gives salvation. He will judge the living and the dead. This judgment will entirely be based on what you will do with this Jesus. This Jesus describing himself and he's describing the end, the final judgment, and he is the judge. He will rise, uh, he will raise all of us at the end and we will stand before him. And the end has two consequences, right? Those who have done good will be resurrected to life and those who have done evil to be resurrected to judgment. Uh, Done good and done evil sounds moralistic, doesn't it? But we know that Jesus just said in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Uh, he does not come into judgment and has passed from death to life. So who hears his voice and believes him has eternal life. Here is what is happening. We often equate doing good to good works, like going to church or being kind or not collecting tigers for our own private zoo, that kind of thing. Uh, But Jesus explains good works in John 6. Just a couple chapters over, he says this. He says, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him. You believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So those who believe in him, who honor him, who surrender under his rule and reign will join Jesus as as an adopted son in his family. That is what Jesus means when he says those who have done good, those who truly believe in him, that's it. And for them awaits the resurrection of life. And this, in that reality, God will walk with us. He will be with us. No more sickness, no more death, no more suffering. But those who don't believe, who don't honor Jesus, who don't surrender under his rule and reign, in other words, those who have done evil will face the resurrection of judgment. And so, So Jesus is loved by the Father. Jesus has the authority and power to save and give life. And Jesus will be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is lighting up the sky for us and he's letting us know who he truly is. And so will you believe this Jesus? Will you believe Jesus is God? 
But Jesus is not done, is he? He gives us three witnesses for the claim he just made. He says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Uh, this is the reason he gives us three witnesses, because Jesus knew the Old Testament well. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus knows this, and so so he he gives he brings three witnesses. Jesus continues his explanation of how he is God by giving the religious leaders three witnesses. So so the first one is John the Baptist. He says in verse thirty three, "You have been to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness about me." Uh, maybe you remember in chapter one, in verses thirty two and thirty four. Uh, it actually said, and John bore witness. Uh, he said, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so there, John the Baptist has proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God already. In fact, Jesus says, you religious leaders send to John, meaning that you went to John. John didn't go to you. You went to John and you, and you got a word from John himself. And now in verse 35, he, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Here's what Jesus is saying is that those religious leaders, he, he says, before I came, John was preaching about the coming Messiah. And it seems like you guys like the message about the Messiah coming. And now that you see who Jesus really is, you don't like it. The reason the religious leaders didn't like Jesus is because he didn't come on the white horse and he didn't overthrow the Roman government. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that, that he cared less about their national independence and more about their heart and their intentions and desires. And in verse 34, Jesus just flat out says, Not that the testimony that I receive from men is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I didn't really need John's testimony because if you knew God, you would know that I have words of life. So John the Baptist is the first witness. The second one is the works of Jesus. In verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is doing some amazing miracles, right? Like we have walked through several of them already. Maybe even you remember Nicodemus came to Jesus in part because of the signs and wonders he saw. Uh, there, there's no natural explanation for the works that Jesus does. So therefore, there has to be a supernatural explanation. In a few chapters, in chapter 7, verse 31, after Jesus did, did some other signs and miracles, uh, we read, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, the works that Jesus does testify for who he is. They bear witness uh, to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a saying that goes like this. If, 
it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. And Jesus walks like a Messiah. Jesus talks like a Messiah. Jesus does the works like a Messiah. Then he must be the Messiah. He is God. And Jesus brings the Father to the witness stand to establish the credibility of the works. In verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me ha- has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's saying the Father himself is clearly behind the works that I'm doing, so it should be clear that I'm sent by him, but you've always been blind to him. And even though you see these works, you're still blind. So John, the writer of the gospel, ultimately records seven miracles, and the final one is Jesus conquering death itself. And all these miracles are proved, given so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So John, so John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus, and the works that Jesus performed bore witness. Now Jesus says the last witness is the word or the scriptures. It's in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So Jesus says, you have searched the scriptures. And what he means by that, he's talking about the Old Testament here. The Old Testament often can be categorized by two themes. One, man's inability to save himself and his continued rebellion. Uh, Think just even for a second, think about the heroes of faith. Like Noah, after the ark is landed, got drunk. Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, the patriarch of their faith, lied and didn't trust God to wait for the promised son. Moses led the Israelites to the promised land, but he didn't go in it, did he? No, because why? Because he disobeyed God. And if I keep going, what about David? David, the man after God's own heart, he committed adultery and then tried to cover it up by committing murder in the process. And so why are all these horrible stories in the Bible? Because we, too, are sinners who need a Savior. And as I said this last week, we try to define good and evil for ourselves. And without the hope of the gospel, we'll end up in death without hope. And this points to the second theme, God will send us a Savior. And Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures and you should see that I am that Savior. All the scriptures have, have read that you have read point to me. If you read them correctly and if you understand them correctly, if you see my actions, you would rejoice because you recognize that I am your Savior. So as Jesus lit up the sky for you today, how does it affect you? Do you feel your feet following the path he is lighting? Maybe a better question is, what, if anything, is preventing you from believing this about Jesus and surrendering your whole life to him? There are many reasons we tend to avoid surrender to him. One of the reasons Jesus points out is in verse 44. 
Verse 44, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You see, this one sentence, Jesus slices, sliced us wide open. He didn't just reveal the religious leaders' hearts. He reveals our hearts as well. You receive glory from one another. In other words, we can we care more about getting love and respect and other and honor from other people and less about the incredible life-giving glory that comes from God. And how do we do this? How do we do this? We do this by pretending that we are okay, by pretending that we are strong, independent, that we don't have needs, that we are not broken or by performing in front of others by racking up goals and accomplishment by doing good and looking clean on the outside and why do we do this is because we want glory from men in this one sentence Jesus dissects us and and pulls out all our self-righteousness he shows our addiction to rightness and I think during a pandemic this performance and pretending almost can't exist you need you needed grace before the pandemic and you need grace in the middle of pandemic because look closer no matter how strong you might seem i bet by now cracks are now starting to show and the answer is not trying to patch up those cracks it's actually to lean into those cracks and admit that you need help to believe that jesus is god and to surrender to him is to lean into those cracks is to lean into your weakness and say i need you jesus you are my strength period you are my god period i want to end i want to end with an article from the atlantic it's an article about Francis Collins, who's a director of NIH, is the National Institute of Health. So naturally, this man has been in high demand lately. He was asked for his source of strength during this time of need. Uh, he said his only religion, religious instruction growing up was being sent to a local Episcopal church choir to learn the music. He said, I was instructed by my dad to ignore the rest, which I did. But as a med student in his late 20s, sitting by bedsides of hurting and dying people, he realized he needed something, something much greater than himself to make sense of the world and to personally get through each day. So after, he, after reading Mere Christianity, Christianity um, which C.S. Lewis wrote as lectures, uh, wartime lectures, Collins uh, became a Christian. So now in his 60s, he, he, has asked, he was asked about his faith, and he said, I think I arrived at a place where my faith has become a really strong support for dealing with life's struggles. It took me a while, I think, that sense that God is sufficient and I don't have to be strong in every circumstances. He continues, quote, One of my great puzzles when I first became a Christian is that Verse, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That was so completely upside down for me. Weakness? And now I embrace that with the fullness of everything around me when I'm realizing that my strength is inadequate. Whether it's coronavirus or some family crisis, God's strength is always sufficient. 
That is such a great comfort. Jesus is that great, strong, all-sufficient God. So whatever you're going through today, look up. His flares are in the sky leading you to him. Lean into your weakness and surrender to him. Let me pray for us.